all persons are bound to seek the truth in those things which regard God and his church, and by virtue of divine law are bound by the obligation. Today is the 2nd of June, 2020, Tuesday in the Octave of Pentecost. Welcome to episode number 113 of the Barnhart Podcast. This is Mark Doherty sitting in again for Super Nerd, who continues his social distancing from the podcast. <laughs> With us again today is special guest, Dr. Edmund Matza, professor, scholar, author, and as of last week, central figure in the question of who is true pope of the one true church. In case you missed it, Dr. Matza appeared on Taylor Marshall's YouTube broadcast on 27 May, and then here on the Bornhard podcast the following day. And today is part two of that podcast. Dr. Matza, welcome back again. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. And hello, Anne. Hi. Hey, guys. Hope everybody's doing well. So I tried to, to narrow down a, a proper starting off point here. Uh, I thought perhaps we would just start with Dr. Matza summarizing uh, the, 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 the central point of his thesis and really the unique point in his thesis that we hadn't really heard before, hadn't been sussed out previously. Can you honor us with that, Doctor? Sure thing. I can try to make it pithy. So we've got a statements by Pope Benedict, uh, and both before and after uh, he was no longer uh, in Rome, so to speak. Um, and we've got statements by the prefect of the pontifical household, who is Joseph Ratzinger's right hand, and that is uh, Archbishop Georg Gonswein. Uh, we have statements from him. And these statements both dive with each other, okay? Um, if we look at, for example, uh, what, what Pope Benedict was quoted as saying in the just-released German biography of him by uh, Peter Sewald, who, of course, has interviewed him uh, before, uh, according to uh, Benedict, he says that the spiritual mandate is alone still mine. Uh, what is that supposed to mean, right? He allegedly resigned seven years ago, right? Um, and then, of course, we had, and that's just one quote. I, last week, we went through a lot of them, and I went through a lot of them on Dr. Marshall's show. And then we have the speech at the Greg by Georg Gonswein, uh, in which he also says certain things that uh, agree with what uh, Joseph Ratzinger has said here. Um, for example, he says that... Um, he talks about munis, uh, which, for, in case folks don't know, this canon law says, I believe, is it canon 331 or 332? 332.2. Okay. Stardate 332.2. Okay. Um, if, the, uh, if the Pope decides to resign his munis or renounce his munis, the proper word is renounce, um, it, it, it just has to be... Uh, official, it has to be public, it, it doesn't have to be accepted by everybody, uh, and it just it has to be manifested properly. And that's really the only line uh, directly speaking about renunciation in canon law. 
But the problem is in his so declaration. We, we might as well, Doctor. We might as well just read it into the record. Um, oh sure. Canon three thirty two point two, and this is in a section that's dealing directly and only with the Roman Pontiff, not not any general renunciations or resignations. This is specifically, well, as you'll see in, in the in the verbiage, uh, if it happens that the Roman Pontiff resigns his office, and in the Latin it is munus. It is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested, but not that it is accepted by anyone. Exactly. Uh, and the word that's used in the Latin, and Latin, of course, is the official language, uh, is munus. Um, and he, in his Declaratio of uh, February 11th, 2013, nowhere in the document does he say, freely, I renounce the munus. Um, now, getting back to Georg Ganswein, he says, uh, this was in uh, May 20th, I believe, of 2016. Um, he says, Munis in Latin has a multiplicity of meanings. It can mean service, duty, guide, or gift, even prodigy. Now, here's the, here's the key phrase. Before and after his resignation... Benedict understood, past tense, and understands, present tense, his task as a participation in such a Petrine ministry. That's to say, munis, as translated as ministry, but meaning munis. So we've got Gonschwein telling us that Benedict still understands his task as a participation in the munis. And that, you know, it, it, that jives with what uh, the Holy Father himself tells us most recently with Seewald. Uh, snippets from the German biography were released in English earlier in, in May. And especially I'm quoting from a uh, LifeSite news article here by uh, Micah Hickson, where uh, Benedict, uh, again, says that the uh, spiritual uh, mandate is his, even if uh, his new relationship with the seat lies outside the concrete legal substance of the Episcopal office. Man, only Germans. <laughs> only Germans. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because I, I, I make these remarks about Germans and I get these, I get this hate mail from people saying, you're racist. Why, why do you keep bad mouthing Germans? And my first response is, well, did you check my last name? <laughs> <laughs> and, and number two, it, it is true that, you know, the, the saying is the Rhine flows into the Tiber. And if you go back, how many centuries now, even, even predating Luther, there's just been so much garbage that's come out of Germany in these convoluted, you know, I made the point very early on about people just having extremely high IQs and being being hyper intelligent. And that's kind of the, the thing that's working against them because they just tie themselves in these absolutely bizarre knots where they get to the point that they literally convince themselves that words have exactly the opposite meaning of the plain sense of the words. And so it's almost, it's like, it's like trying to, <laughs> the, the only 
analogy I can think of is, is wrestle a greased hog, you know? If you're trying to have some sort of a, a, a discourse or rhetorical back and forth with someone, and they, they can get themselves off into some academic intellectual argument whereby words mean exactly the opposite of their plain sense, it's basically impossible to have an adult, a serious adult conversation with, with that being the base premise that words are just completely slippery and not only don't mean what they mean, but can mean exactly the opposite. And that's where we find ourselves. And I think that's precisely why canon law has these canons built into it, specifically addressing the sense of words, how, how words should be taken, understood. If there's not clarity, then go look for other instances of the use of words within, within the law itself, just trying to pin this down and keep this nonsense of this just super slippery um, use of language from, from creeping into into the law and i mean and it's we sit here and say that but then we realize good grief that that's all lawyers do is try to make words slippery and try to make things mean what sometimes they objectively do not mean and i i just i got i can't help i can't help but quote at this point uh if you ask him, he'll tell you he's one of the most qualified Latinists alive today. There's a there's a guy named Ryan Grant who was a high school Latin teacher, and he he said it himself. His quote from January 31st of this year, 2020, and I've got the screenshot of it, is, quote, while it is true that in canon law, munis is juridically taken to mean office, that much is true, and is conceptually different than ministerium, however it belongs to the supreme legislator to determine the sense of his own acts, and Benedict XVI clearly intended resignation from the munus because the papal ministry and the papal munus are not separable, unquote. So, I mean, it, it, that's exactly, I mean, he admits, he opens by admitting that munus is juridically taken to mean office, and then literally inside of the same sentence without even a full stop he says but of course pope benedict the 16th meant exactly the opposite and we we can all read his mind and etc cetera, etc cetera. this is precisely why canon law is set up the way it is 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 to protect against stuff like that because if words have no meaning then the biggest thug wins it, it, the big the guy who is the most violent who's willing to wield power in a violent way and i mean that like in the sense of bergoglio you know they're all terrified of bergoglio because he's a thug and so words mean what he says they mean and canon law is not playing those games canon law is saying words mean what their plain sense means and if there's any doubt cross check within the law itself and get other usages and Munus means office and ministry means ministry. Period. Exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm sorry, that's canon 17. That uh, if there arises a doubt about the signification of a canon, one is to have recourse uh, to the code of canon law. And then I guess if that fails, you move on to the sources of canonical tradition. And then after that, the mind of the legislator, which in this case uh, would have been Pope John Paul II, because the code that we're talking about is the 1983 code. The, uh, <clears throat> the Ryan Grant quip uh, reminds me of something that happened in uh, Taylor Marshall's interview with the professor 
which is that at one point he made the same sort of dismissive argument about Munis versus Ministerium. Yet 30 minutes later into the interview, he admitted he's got full knowledge that this was a full-blown, the central point being debated in, you know, mid-20th century German theology. So um, you can't, you can't say that, well, none of this matters. This is a, an insignificant distinction. And then also admit at the same time that uh, all, the, all the best German minds were working on this for decades. So, so it, this is, this is, oh, go ahead. So you've, you've got, you've got, um, you've got Georg Ganswein telling us that both before and after the resignation, uh, Pope Benedict is participating in the Petrine ministry, if you understand that word as munis in Latin. Um, and then you've got Pope Benedict saying uh, that the spiritual mandate is still his, even though it's not legally an aspect of the episcopacy. And so uh, we've got critics who criticize that. Uh, for example, in my interview with Dr. Marshall, I brought up people like Dr. Roberto Di Mattei, who say that's an error on the part of Ratzinger. Let me give you this quote. Um, this was from Rorate Chiley blog, and this was from January 18th of this year. Roberto Di Mattei wrote about the mess, quote unquote, of quote, having two cohabitating popes in the Vatican. And he says, quote, this situation is the consequence of a grave theological error by Cardinal Ratzinger. By keeping the title Pope Emeritus, as happens with bishops, he appears to believe that the rise to the papacy imprints an indelible mark similar to that of the priesthood. In reality, the sacramental grades of the priesthood are three only, the diaconate, the priesthood, and the episcopacy. The papacy belongs to another hierarchy in the church, the jurisdictional one or the governmental one, wherein it is the apex. When a pope is elected, he receives the office of supreme jurisdiction, not a sacrament with an indelible mark, unquote. So um, you've got uh, people like Professor Di Mattei and others, George Weigel, uh, Cardinal uh, Brandmuller, uh, many people saying that if uh, Pope Benedict thinks that he still participates in the Munis, that he still participates in a reality connected to the papacy, then he is in grave error. Could you could you even perhaps say that he's in sub- substantial <laughs> error? <laughs> But but the point is, just so our listeners don't uh, don't get confused, when when there is an error, a, a a legal error of some sort, when things go sideways, legally you revert to the status quo. So by us sitting here saying this, that Pope Ratzinger and Professor Di Mattei and all these other people, and yes, Cardinal Bramuller, who I was told was absolutely livid, livid with Pope Benedict. In, in the in the first days and you know continued to be none too happy at all um, but when when something goes sideways and, and an error crops up like this 
you revert to the status quo. So that means that Pope Benedict never stopped being the Pope. If, if this resignation thing is messed up, if it is defective, then the resignation was defective and he never resigned. And that's why a lot of times I tag my little uh, prayer conclusion with the, with the words, pray for Pope Benedict, the one and only living Pope, whether he likes it or not, because that's a really important concept. If there's a, def a defect in the resignation, the law says you revert to the status quo. What, what was the situation right before the defect happened? Well, Pope Benedict's the Pope. This is, this is a foundational premise of jurisprudence going all the way back into English common law, Roman law, everything, because it makes sense. It makes logical sense. If a defect occurs, the law doesn't say, well, let's just let this error keep going and going and getting worse and, you know, like a snowball rolling down the hill, just getting bigger and hor more horrible and more difficult to correct. No, common sense says if there's a defect, you revert to the status of the way things were right before the defect happened, and that's where we are. And so what we're saying, and I think probably Professor DiMattei, he's, he's probably trying to argue the opposite, that, you know, that Pope Benedict is wrong to think that... Um, that he still has any participation in, in anything papal. It's exactly the opposite of that. Pope Benedict is the one and only living Pope. He is the only participant in anything, in anything Petrine right now. So we, both Professor DiMattei and, you know, Cardinal Brandmuller and all those people and us, we're, we're making the same point but the conclusion that we come to is 180 degrees different. They say there's an heir, therefore Pope Benedict isn't the Pope, and so all of this him wearing white and still being Holy Father and still give, giving my apostolic blessing, that's all wrong. We're saying, hold on, no, no, no. Be because of this error, he never validly resigned. And he still is the one and only true pope. So it's a, it's a it's a it's a subtle, nuanced point. But I just want to make sure the readers understand that we're we're looking at the same data set, but the conclusion that we're coming to is 180 degrees different. They say he's not the pope. We say, oh yes, he is. He's the one and only living pope. Well, this is where my, I stumbled into the this argument, <laughs> and that is that uh, you know p people who say that Francis is still the pope, uh, even though Benedict committed error say, well, look at what, what Benedict says. He says in his Declaratio that as of such and such a date, right, uh, February the 28th at 20 hours, uh, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter will be vacant and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is. And prior to that, in the previous sentence, he said with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome. Um, so uh, I started asking myself, how can we square this, this statement by the Holy Father with his other statements and by his actions? As you said, he still dresses in white. He still gives apostolic blessings. He still holiness. Um, how do we make sense of this? And you know, up to this point, the, the, the consensus was uh, that, uh, he's operating under substantial error 
or a her heretical notion of the papacy or however you want to phrase it. And then the, the only difference was is that some people say, well, the document is still valid, therefore he's not Pope. And other people say, no, uh, there's substantial error, so the document is not valid and things revert back to the status quo. And so he is still Pope. Um, and then how to make sense of this. And so in my research, I, I stumbled across a, uh, a quotation from a book from 1888. And, <laughs> and it's about the papacy, but it's also about the episcopacy of, of, the, of the Bishop of Rome. And it's by a priest named Thomas Livius, who was a redemptorist priest. He was a convert from Anglicanism. And he dedicated his book to Cardinal Newman, who was still alive at that time, uh, or who had just died. But, um, and the, the key phrase uh, that I found in that book, it made sense of everything else that's been going on. Uh, and that is that um, uh, there has been a debate in the 19th century, whether or not, well, actually, let me just let me give the quotation. To say then that the popes are St. Peter's true successors and have the primacy by divine right is to assert a Catholic truth that has been defined by the church and belongs to her faith. But Christ did not determine what were to be the conditions in concreto of such true succession, but left, it, left all this to the determination of St. Peter and his successors. He goes on to say, even granting that the union of the primacy of Peter with the Roman see is Jure Divino, which is what J. Michael Miller, the Archbishop of Vancouver, that's what that whole book is about. Yeah. Um, the particular question may still be raised, right? This is Thomas, Father Thomas Livius in 1888 saying this. The question may be raised whether a pope in some evidently most grave and urgent necessity could validly separate the primacy from the see of Rome. Now he's, he does give a caveat. He says the solution here is not an easy one and grave theologians may be cited on either side of this question. But I, that was a eureka moment for me. I'm sure. like, that is the only Catholic, truly Catholic, Orthodox explanation for what Benedict could possibly have done. Because as, every, as all the other experts are pointing out, if this is not the answer, then everything that he did was either wrong or heretical or substantially erroneous, correct? So um, if, but if what he did was, if all he, if what he did was to separate the, the uh, primacy of Rome from the episcopacy of Rome, well then his, his declaratio makes sense because uh, you, you guys correct me if you think I'm out in left field holding a hockey stick here. But in the Declaratio, he says, I, with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter. Now, it seems to me that in that whole Declaratio, those are the only words that have juridical uh, power. I that's agree correct. with that. That's, that's all the, everything else around that, I think a lot of people don't realize this, juridically speaking, 
everything else around that sentence is window dressing. Exactly. Now, if that's the case, then we should take the man at his word. You know, that's the whole thing. Nobody wants to take the man at his word. He's 93 years old. He's, he's forgotten more than I will ever know. And as much as we, we wish he would be more like uh, St. Pius X, the man knows a thing or two, okay? And he's been around the block. Uh, he was, the, he was uh, Pope John Paul II's right-hand man uh, as, the, as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, you know, he was bebopping around with the other parity at, at Vatican II, God help us. But the man knows, he, he knows a lot. So if he says, I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, okay, let's take him at face value. But if he also says repeatedly in various interviews that spiritual mandate is still mine, or as Georg Ganschwein says, uh, both before and after he considers himself participating in the Petrine Munis, then that means he, he is separating the Munis from the ministry or the ministerium of the Bishop of Rome. And the only way he can do that, according to to Catholicism, and this is even, you know, a debatable point, but the only possible way, hypothetical way he could do it uh, is based on this, in this quotation that I found from Father Livius, that he, he apparently, what he did was he separated the primacy of Peter from the Bishop of Rome. And I, w I want to jump in and put that um, Father Livius 1888 quote in context for people realize that back in the second half of the 19th century, and really this had been going on all along, there was war. I think Pius IX, correct me if I'm wrong, listenership, or, or you guys, I believe it was Pius IX who was chased out of Rome and ended up down in exile in Naples. This business of the Pope being physically removed by by essentially war from Rome, this was a very this was a clear and present um, contingency that that was in all of these people's minds in in the late nineteenth century. Yes, pe people may not realize this, but um, in eighteen sixty nine, uh, the the forces for Italian unification and a significant part of those forces were Freemasonic. Well, it was a holy Freemasonic <laughs> project, absolutely, yes. Uh, well, in terms of the brains of the operation, at least, right? But the, they, they uh, successfully united Italy as a, as a country for the first time uh, in its history. You know, before that, it was separate little countries. And for, for over a thousand years, the central Italy was belonged to the papacy. The Pope was a political figure as well as a spiritual figure. It was called the Papal States. The Papal States, he was an earthly monarch. Exactly. Um, just a monarch, just like any other king, but he was the monarch of monarchs. But yeah, he ran all of central Italy under the name the Papal States. And you know, it's funny, we're, we're talking about this because if I'm not mistaken, today is June 2nd. And I think today is the, is the Italian holiday that celebrates the Masonic unification <laughs> wow. into this into this monstrosity so i think it's it's quite providential that here we are recording on this is the the national holiday in italy <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing and the other thing that people don't realize and again this is trying to put father livius's quote in context uh, he wrote this in 1880 years earlier in 1870 
uh, that's when the, the, they basically made the Pope a prisoner in the Vatican. Uh, they, they basically, Italy owned everything in Italy now, that with the new country of Italy, including Rome. And he considered, the Pope considered himself a prisoner in the Vatican. But at this very moment, 1869, 1870, was when the, the first Vatican Council was held. And what did the first Vatican Council mainly preoccupy itself with? But the papacy, defining the papacy. And it defined okay. especially three things. One, that the Pope is infallible. That's de fide. You, you have to believe that or you're not a Catholic. Two, that this power um, was given by our Lord to St. Peter. That is to say the primacy was given by our Lord to St. Peter. And thirdly, we have to believe that this power was passed on to Peter's successors and that this, the bishops of Rome are the legitimate and true successors of St. Peter and they have this primacy. And it was, you know, right. mm -hmm. what one of the reasons why they went, um, why they went after the Pope um, and he ended up having to flee and all that is that they, the Freemasons were threatening the fathers of Vatican I and saying, do not do this infallibility thing. If, if you do th this infallibility thing, we're that'll be the end of it. We're going to come after you. And sure enough, Vatican I did promulgate as dogma papal infallibility. And that's what that was, what lit the fuse with the Freemasons. So it, it's all, this is all connected to that. Yeah. And, so, and it, if you were in favor of infallibility, and if you were really, really pushing the powers of the Pope, um, then you were called an ultramontane, montanist, or an, you were an ultramontane. And of all the cardinals and bishops who attended the First Vatican Council, uh, probably the most ultramontane was Cardinal Henry Edward Manning of, uh, of the Archbishop, the, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster in England. And in January of 1871, he issued a letter to the English people, to the church, explaining to them why infallibility was so important and what they had defined and why the papal, you know, papal power is, is premier, right? Well, guess what? This ultramontane guy is the same person who gave the imprimatur in 1888 to Father Livius's book, in which I found the statement that it is theoretically possible, theologically possible for the Pope to separate the primacy from the episcopacy. Now I bring this up because um, it was pointed out to me that I made a mistake on the air last week when I attributed uh, the imprimatur for, for the book to a, a Cardinal Edward Henry, uh, who was the Cardinal Archdeacon for St. Peter's Basilica. So I wanna correct myself, but this is even oh. better. This is uh, yeah, oh, I did. I did. No, I didn't. Had I had no idea it was Cardinal Manning. Oh, Cardinal Manning is. It, it, there, there are two camps. There are people who are in the the Newman camp, and there are people in the Manning camp. And I, I am firmly, firmly in the Manning camp. So no question. Yeah. So I don't think Cardinal Manning would would have allowed Father Livius to say that the Pope can separate. Uh, theoretically, the Pope does have the power as the successor of St. Peter to separate the uh, primacy from the Bishop of Rome, from the Episcopal See. Um, he's the last person that would give his imprimatur to that because when a, when a bishop or a cardinal or whoever gives imprimatur to a uh, book, basically they're saying, I've read the book, 
And there's nothing against Catholic doctrine. There's nothing against the faith in this book. So just a quick uh, point to, to wrap up the, well, maybe not wrap it up, but just how it all, it, everything that we uncover in turn, every, you know, you peel back the onion and everything just seems more and more tied together. The uh, promulgation, the promulgation of Pastor Eternus uh, on infallibility, 18 July, 1870, the invasion of Rome and the imprisonment of Pius IX, 20th September, 1870. Not a coincidence not even remotely a coincidence. In fact, the, the one was the antecedent to the other. Yeah. And if you want to talk about uh, spooky coincidences, <laughs> or nice coincidences, I should say, uh, today, June 2nd, is the, uh, well, over three decades ago, I received the Sacrament of Confirmation today. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, guess what my confirmation saint name was? Mm. Did I do the theme from Jeopardy? <laughs> Mark? Um, well, is it Marcellanus, Peter, or Elmo? Because that's the feast day today. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it was Benedict. Ooh. Yeah, so I hope that uh, St. Benedict is helping me to, uh, to see through this and to see clearly on this, I would hope, uh, to help Papa Benedetto, you know? Um, and the other thing actually that I, I, I did, well, so we, we were talking about Vatican I and how uh, the council fathers defined about the papacy, a great deal about it. But in J. Michael Miller's book, who's now the, it was his dissertation, the, the Greg published it 40 years ago. Now he's the Archbishop of uh, Vancouver. Um, in that book, he gives us uh, the background to what was going on at Vatican I. And, and the council fathers um, did not, at least in the end, they did not want to say, they didn't want to close the question on whether a pope could or could not um, take, the take the primacy away from the Bishop of Rome. They sort of left that as a disputed question that theologians can dispute back and forth. Uh, and he, he can tell us about that because it's, you have to look at the, uh, the different documents and notes that they published amongst themselves while they were preparing the final document, right, Pastor Eternus. And I found a book in French on this subject. So if anybody reads French, you can read Le Pape, Évêque Universel ou Premier des Évêques. <laughs> English in, in uh, J. Michael Miller's book where he talks about this. So not just in Father Livius's book from 1888, but also in uh, Archbishop Miller's book, he again confirms uh, that this is a, an open theological question. Uh, but I just, now, I, I don't want people, you know, what I, when I went on the Taylor Marshall show, it, it did cause a little bit of a sensation when I first proposed this, uh, this, this thesis of mine. And I don't want to be accused of being a know-it-all, and I don't want to be accused of using a sledgehammer to, you know, swat a, a gnat here. I, I, I just want to go on record as saying that I do realize that this is an extremely difficult and delicate, um, it's a unique question, and I'm only really providing my, my findings to date here, and I, I wouldn't wanna propose something that was not of the Catholic faith, and so I, I continue to try to verify this, and so I'm a member of the hierarchy, 
And he was kind enough to write back to me. Now, I did not say that my thesis is that <laughs> Pope Benedict uh, is still Pope because he, he separated the primacy from the Episcopal See of Rome. But I did say that I was interested in that theological concept, you know, separating the uh, Romanitas, uh, separating the, the primacy from the Romanitas. And uh, I got a reply yesterday, and I would like to read to you guys uh, the answer that I got. Okay. Um, it says here, I, uh, certainly I believe that it is not heretical to hold that the primacy of Peter could be separated from the See of Rome, though there are very good reasons not to do so. And can you guys guess which archbishop in the church just said that? Archbishop? Mm-hmm. Um, is it Miller himself? Is Miller himself. Yeah, yeah. So 40 years ago, he was talking about this when he analyzed you know, Vatican I and, and, and other points of history in the church. And, and now he says it. So um, I, am wow. I am trying to be careful about this. I am trying to find as many sources as I can. Well, I mean, it, to me, it, it, seems, it seems completely logical um, that if, if you do believe, well, first of all, going back to the point that you made that we are in a completely, totally unique situation without any precedent. This has been one of the, the talking points, if you can even call it that, that people have been trying to use against myself, Mark, and all the rest of the people who are working on this is that, well, there's, there's no precedent to any of this, therefore, dot, 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 as if, as if there has to be a precedent for everything. Um, no, there, there doesn't have to be a precedent for everything. That's why we have the word unprecedented. And when you're in a unique, unprecedented situation, you can't sit there and whine and say, well, I need somebody back in the church fathers to tell me what this and what we're supposed to do. You can't go back and read Bellarmine, for example, and, and there, because there is no instance of Bellarmine or anyone else saying, okay, if the Pope <laughs> finds out that the entire Curia and the entire College of Cardinals, almost, and almost the entire College of Bishops is infiltrated by Freemasons, Sodomites, and, and Satanists, and he submits a substantially erroneous um, cutesy-poo, I'm going to kind of sort of still be the Pope, but then you can elect my success. It, okay, no, you're not going to find Robert Bellarmine with a flowchart PowerPoint presentation telling us how to deal with this. Because this is frankly, and we talked about this on, on the last episode, this, would, this situation would be completely inconceivable to any of them, any of the saints, any of the doctors, any of the fathers of the church. If they looked at the situation that we're in right now, it was, I mean, they, they couldn't have come up with this in a million years. Heck, we couldn't have come up with this in a million years. And we're, we're right in the middle of it. But then let's think about the fact that, you know, there's, there are extraordinarily strong indications that if these aren't the end times, I'll, I'll be kind of surprised. And at this point, I think it, it behooves every believing Catholic to 
have the contingency in their mind that this could be the run-up to the big show, that Bergoglio could be the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. Now, I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. If I were, hypothetically, if I were the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, and I saw Bergoglio completely stealing my act all day, every day, I'd be a little bit bitter. Because at this point, what, 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 could, what could the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist possibly do at this point that would be like more over the top and more preparing the way for the anti-church and the anti-Christ than what anti-Pope Bergoglio has done. I mean, if I were the false prophet foreigner of the Antichrist, I would be, I would be legitimately miffed and put out that this Argentinian idiot had completely stolen my act. Um, and so if we're, if we're, if we have that contingency as a real possibility in our minds, it makes perfect sense as prophecy said, Rome will become the seat of the Antichrist. If Rome is the seat of the Antichrist, doesn't that kind of imply that Peter is not going to be at Rome? I, I mean, to me, I, it just it just kind of seems logical that if Rome falls, total apostasy from the top, and the, the true church is driven out and the anti-church is erected in the city of Rome. And it's hard to argue at this point that that's not exactly what has been going on and continues to go on. Doesn't it make sense that that would then necessitate Peter going somewhere else temporarily? And then, you know, the, there, our Lord will come in glory to judge the living and the dead and there will be a great and wonderful restoration, which I would love to see. But it, it to me, it, again, it just makes such sense that, yeah, there would be a temporary displacement while Rome became, became the see of the Antichrist and the, the center of the anti-church. It seems so logical. Well, and, we're sure 100% right about the, the, we can't, sit back and whine because there's there's no precedent or we don't have uh, uh, one of the fathers of the church or a Bellarmine or, or someone like that to, to guide the way. Because as we heard at the very top of this show, Canon 748 tells us that we're bound to seek the truth. That's right. We're moral. It's a moral obligation. So um, we, we've got to dig. We got the, the evidence that's visible. We need to process that and cobble together what we can to see if we can find what's really going on here. And just to tie it back to where we he- where we were headed a minute ago, we're talking about the governance slash function slash active role slash ministry and whether that can be, whether it can be split off, uh, whether the, the uh, Sea of Rome can be split off from the primacy and I think for the for the next few minutes, what we need to spend some time with is uh, dialoguing under the assumption that it is, in fact, as Archbishop Miller says, it is doable, so to speak, and get to the question of, well, do we think that that really was done? In other words, did he actually split the Sea of Rome or is it merely delegated? And there's a couple canons that I think can 
can help us mm. sort that out mm -hmm. because and and we've dealt with these with these cannons previously but uh are we okay taking it that direction sure yeah absolutely yeah so the first i would bring up would be canon 38 so again we're framing this in the, in the sense of we see what he attempted to do and we're trying to answer the question of whether he actually executed it or not canon 38 reads an administrative act, even if it is a rescript given motu proprio, lacks effect insofar as it injures the acquired right of another or is contrary to a law or approved custom unless the competent authority has expressly added a derogating clause. So if, I, if, if we clean it up a little bit and just get to the heart of the matter, what it's saying is an administrative act lacks effect if it's contrary to a law or an approved custom, which we could argue whether the Sea of Rome being attached to the primacy is a law or an approved custom, but it's one or the other. So an administrative act lacks effect if it's contrary to the law or a custom, unless the competent authority has expressly added a derogating clause. So I take that as he would have had to issue something else either within the, the decoratio or separate from it that says, hey, we're splitting the, the sea from the primacy. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't done. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And that is why we so desperately need um, the, the remnant faithful men high up in the church, preferably, of course, preferably canonists, to step up and look at this and address this and engage this because that you're right mark that is a huge question right now that question is what what exactly the hell is bergoglio is he the bishop of rome is he um is he the bishop of buenos aires is he a criminal and absolutely nothing i mean th there's all kinds of possibilities here of who is this guy and did did pope benedict actually accomplish this or is pope benedict still also the bishop of rome and this is we need we need minds and canonists looking at this and engaging this and not burying their heads in the sand and saying oh fiddly d all we can do is wait for them to die and that that is where the vast 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 majority majority of of men in authority in the church are today their their flag that they're that they're marching under is all we can do is wait for is wait for them to die and no that's not the case you you can man up and step up and get some and get resolution to this now in fact charity demands it because whoever needs to repent for doing what they need to be corrected before they die and not die in in sin and in error and and you know anything that needs to be ironed out you you need to get that done before the person dies so so the other canon that ties into what we just heard in canon 38 where there there needs to be a derogating clause that specifically calls out hey this is this is contrary to law or contrary to custom, but I'm but I'm specifically calling out the fact that in this case it's okay. And of course, being the Pope, he can he can dispense from anything he wants to. He just has to call it out. Mm 
and that wasn't done. The second, it seems to me, the second canon that comes into play here is canon 131.1, which we've also discussed before. But the, the canon reads, the ordinary power of governance is that which is joined to a certain office by the law itself. Delegated, that which is granted to a person, but not by means of an office. So we have the right. idea where, you know, anyone in the world, I think, can agree, regardless of, of who someone thinks may be the true pope. I think everyone can agree that there has been a delegation here. Benedict clearly is not exercising the active function of the of the ministry. It, it, it has been delegated, regardless of what Bergoglio might or might not be in, in terms of legal status. He is the one who's exercising the function of governance. Well, Ratzinger's own words from the 27 February final audience is active governance of the church. That is, that is Ratzinger's phrase. I'm walking away from the active governance of the church. And so in my part two video, this, this is all brought up in terms of um, what, what was he, was he trying to establish a regency whereby he would, um, he, you know, fundamentally transforming into a synodal collegial office. He, he basically would be setting up a regency and then presumably the regent would just be grandfathered in as the next, I mean, it's madness. It's absolute madness, which is why Dr. Motz's thesis is just so much cleaner. Dr. Motz's thesis takes all of these little threads that are hanging out and just ties them all off beautifully. Everything's clean. Everything makes sense. The, I think the only thing that's left now, like, like we were just talking about, is to figure out what, what is Bergoglio's status? Does he have any, is he actually the, the Bishop of Rome? Um, you know, I, I don't think we have, as I sit here right now, I don't think I have enough data, but let's, let's let Dr. Matza jump in. And Dr. Matza, what do you think about this whole question? Okay, well, I'd like to first deal with the canon law that Mark just brought up, and then we can deal with the issue of uh, Papa Francesco, so to speak. Um, now, I've, I've heard it both ways. Uh, does the Pope have the authority to, well, for example, Pope Benedict created out of thin air Pope Emeritus, right? Uh, never existed before, except in the perverted minds of the Swedish death metal band uh, Ghost, <laughs> as we talked about last week, I think. Um, he did not issue a motu proprio. He did not change canon law. You can look through the code of canon law. You'll find nothing about a Pope Emeritus. So he's already done something for which there is no canonical sanction. And if he didn't have the right to do that, then maybe he's still Pope just because of that. You know what I mean? Because he, he, he can't be Pope Emeritus if it went against the law. He, he'd be a lawbreaker, so to speak, right? Now, um, but let's get back to the issue of did he, uh, does he have the power canonically to separate the uh, primacy of Peter from uh, the Episcopal See of Rome? And I've heard it both ways. Uh, in, in, in other words, does he have to issue a motu proprio? Does he have to change canon law? For example, uh, about 20 years ago, Father Brian Harrison, who's a smart cookie, uh, wrote, even the merely ecclesiastical law 
contained in the code is for the universal church and the Pope is morally obliged to be the first in giving a good example by living and acting as a law-abiding Christian. Of course, as a supreme legislator, the Pope may change any ecclesiastical law by officially and expressly abrogating it or derogating from it. But if he were to decree something which broke the law that is, which acted against an existing ecclesiastical law without expressly adding a clause derogating from the law, then canon law itself, canon 38, states that such a lawless action, even on the part of a competent authority, and that of course includes the Pope, would have no effect. So that's what Mark was just bringing up before. Right. But yet, on the other hand, uh, doctrine Catherine Caridi, who has a, a blog about canon law made easy, uh, she wrote one month before Pope Benedict made his announcement, <laughs> January of 2013, she wrote an article, uh, are there any limitations on the power of the Pope? And I would invite folks to take a look at that. We can probably put that in the show notes. And uh, the, the, the one line that's most important here is this. He, the Pope, is perfectly free to dispense himself from following the law, meaning ecclesiastical law, when he wishes, just as he may change the law entirely if he wishes. She does not add the qualifier that he has to, you know, uh, add a, a derogating clause or he has to do a motu proprio or something like that. So I think the jury is out on whether or not as Supreme Legislator, especially in a grave circumstance, right? I mean, this will, if I've compared what Pope Benedict might have done to Superman trying to outwit the villains from Krypton or Captain Kirk, uh, you know, beating the Kobayashi Maru, uh, the no-win situation. If he were to come out and, and, and spell out for everybody what he did, his plan wouldn't work. So at least that's how I see it. So I would, and again, I'm, I'm not an authority on canon law. I'm just trying to call it as I see it here. I would, I would hope that Catherine Caridi is correct and that as Peter, under a grave circumstance, he could just got to do. But that that kind of leads to a chaotic, uh, a, a, a potential for chaos. I've been assured by the highest levels of the remnant church that they think that the first thesis is the correct one, that the Pope is, as, as Father Brian Harrison said, that the Pope is, as he, he's the servant of servants, you know, so he clearly has to, has to, um, build up the law and for me what this speed what this uh this light bulb moment for me is the rosary the fourth joyful mystery of the rosary um the presentation of our lord in the temple the fact that the blessed virgin went and underwent the right the underwent the rite of purification when she was completely pure she didn't need it but they went and did that. The fact that our Lord was circumcised and that the proto-passion happened on the eighth day after our Lord's nativity, the, the, his blood had already been shed on the eighth day of his life. 
he didn't he is the law he didn't need to he didn't need to be grafted into into israel because he is god but yet what what happened they went and they did they did our lord's um circumcision our lady had the purification etc etc and what is the fruit of the fourth joyful mystery the fruit of that mystery is love of the law and obedience and so if we if we look at it through that through the most holy rosary and i can't tell you how helpful the rosary is in this situation and all of these questions that indicates if if christ followed the law and the blessed virgin followed the law and saint joseph followed the law it's really tough to argue that no the the pope can just hold can do anything he wants and hold it um the latin term is in pectora in, in his heart hold it in his chest so to speak and not tell anybody how how would the faithful know what's going on i mean well it's, let me, um, can i play devil's advocate sure 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 um so two two quick things come to mind right uh one when our lord and the disciples were eating um the grains on the sabbath right picking the mm, grain mm -hmm. uh, and they said how come you're doing that he went back and he said well even king david broke the law so to speak right when he ate from the special bread that was in the the, the holy of holies right in the temple yeah uh yep. the, the, the law was made for man not man for the law or the sabbath right was made for man not man for the sabbath right uh the other example that comes to mind is that on the road to emmaus our lord was conversing right with the two apostles uh and he made it out like he didn't know who jesus was what are you guys talking about and they're like, you're the only Israelite that doesn't know who Jesus was, who was just crucified, blah, blah, blah. Really? Oh, tell. And then he, and then he pretended like he was going to go on further, right? And they're like, no, 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 hang out with us. We, we like your company, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> there, there, there are moments when our Lord is able to act in such a way that perhaps his vicar can also act in the same way, if you catch my drift. A little mental reservation, yeah, yeah, a little, a little, um, uh, what's it called? Not deflection, but, you know, in basketball, when you, when you look off a pass, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's, it's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating question. We need, we need people engaging exactly. this. We need authorities, please, cardinals, X, Y, and Z, anybody who's left come come engage this this is your job this is what this is why you have the authority that you have and um dr matza is certainly not an unlettered lay nothing but mark and i are and a lot of other people are and we're, we want your help we want you to engage this please do and you know we've we've had so much in the liturgy the past few weeks here leading us up to pentecost about light and eyes and visibility and it just it just it's amazing to me because what i think about so often is as benedict set this up and then we talked a little bit on the last show about the the 17 day interstitial period between the declaratio and his actual the, the 28th of february when he went off in a helicopter and everything that unfolded there and how he crafted this thing that doesn't exist called Pope Emeritus and all of the accoutrements that were going to go with it. Um, and the fact is that if Bergoglio really 
did become the Pope on the 13th of March, he could have done away with all of that. Think about, think think Ah, about, good point. Okay. So if, if, if all of that really happened, imagine the, 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 the hubris that, that Benedict would have been exhibiting to, to, to set himself up as this new thing that doesn't exist and, and all the trappings that go with it and making the assumption that his, his juridical, uh, this sort of, that his, that his papacy would actually extend beyond the end of his papacy, basically, because that's what he was doing. He was setting up a future state. I just think it's an interesting point. Well, and it it makes me think of Celestine V, who, when he resigned, and he resigned validly, his successor immediately imprisoned him because, and the successor successor was, I want to say, Boniface. Huh? Let me look it up. Uh, da, 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 da. Boniface VIII. Yes. So Boniface VIII immediately imprisons Peter Celestine because Boniface VIII and all of them are terrified that some cult is going to grow up around Celestine, and and there would be this this risk of people not knowing who the Pope was. And so even though Celestine V with this harmless, very elderly hermit. All he wanted to do was go back to his hermit cave. Boniface VIII was like, nope, you're going to prison because this, this, the risk that this presents for split loyalties and confusion on the part of the faithful, this is unacceptable. So then you've got this precedence of um, when this happens that the next true pope bends over backwards to make absolutely certain that the just resigned, just validly resigned pope is publicly, visibly, he's, he's, let me put it this way, he's visibly invisible, if that makes sense, you know, making absolutely sure that there is no risk for any of this. It also speaks, it seems to me, I think this is maybe more the point that you're going to, Mark, in terms of this visibility that even malefactors, even the demons, are constrained in certain ways. And so you've got all of this imagery of um, anti-Pope Bergoglio, you know, the, the fake hugging and the fake kissing and, oh, all, the, all these photo ops and, oh, he's... Calling calling Pope Benedict, it's like having a grandpa and all this, you know. Um, it speaks to the fact that even the malefactors have to have to respect, and that and that Bergoglio, in a certain sense, Bergoglio, I think, is probably being held back by the divine providence and isn't able to touch Pope Benedict. Right, that's exactly he, where he, I was going. Yeah, was he, yeah. he seems to be how we. I think we know enough about Bergoglio at this point. We know that he's a that he's a thug, that he's that he's he's ruthless and he's absolutely the kind of person that would have stepped in right from the beginning. I mean, make your make your presence known right from the beginning. You know what? Ratzinger, I found you a black cassock. Now back to Bavaria you go. Something right. is holding him back. 7 years later something is still holding him back from that. 
Yep, exactly. And I think and I think that force that's holding him back is supernatural protection of Peter. Right. And then and the knowledge himself that he's not pope has something to do yes. with it. Yeah. I mean the fact we hit on this on the last episode, but we should go back down the list. He comes out on the Logia. He never refers to himself as the Pope. He only refers to himself as the Bishop of Rome. He told, um, he's told, what was it, Scalfari? He's told multiple people, don't call me your holiness. He's, he's scolded people and said, don't call me that. Um, the Vatican phone book, the latest thing, just within the last few weeks, changes the Vatican phone book, takes all the titles away, puts them down on the bottom of the page at, in five-point font as a footnote under the heading historical titles. Um, and it just keeps going on and on. He, when he said, it's conceivably possible that I will be the one to schism the church, Oh, that that one it just, that, that was rolled nuclear. right off his tongue. Can you imagine? That rolled right off his tongue. That and if you if you know anything about schism, the Pope, the person of the Pope, is the principle of unity himself in his person. It is impossible for the Pope to be in schism with himself. So for Bergoglio to even say those words, it is possible that I will be the that I will be the vector of schism. That is logically him him admitting that he is not the pope because the principle of unity cannot be in schism from itself i mean it, we and we can just go on and on and on and on with this evidence and that's so. that that goes directly towards then uh what what is he and what are his followers and aren't we seeing the the emergence of the anti-church in a way that we never would have seen, certainly not with such uh, such a rapid uh, making visible of the anti-church and how how everything is much broader and much deeper than anything we could have imagined in uh, January of 2013. And boy, it has just all hatched out of the mud so quickly. Well, the old Latin saying is, is this, as things near the conclusion, they get faster. So, I mean, we're on a parabolic acceleration curve here. Yeah. So that's, a, that's actually a good pivot point because we're about an hour seven in and we want to make sure that we get to uh, kind of opened up a little bit talking about is it could we be in the end times? Could we be in the in the lead up to the big show? And uh, there's a lot of things that we're intentionally not touching on today because there's a lot going on in the world we're just trying to focus on the on the topic at hand but i want to take a pivot if we can to father gruner and the fatima aspect of everything that's going on and uh i was hoping the professor could kind of kick us off and speak a lot a little bit about father gruner and what he had to say um about the the matter of of Benedict and the the resignation, but also in a broader sense, the question of Fatima and how 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 maybe we should be using that as a guide to current events. And Dr. Matsu, you do have Fatima expertise. That's one of your area areas of focus, is it not? Oh yeah, most most definitely. I mean, it, it goes back to the late 1980s when I was in high school and I was reading the Fatima Crusader. And uh, in the fall of 1989 was when they came out with these bogus statements by Sister Lucia saying that the consecration of Russia had been done and that heaven accepted it, referring to uh, 
the Pope's uh, March 1984 consecration of the world. So already they were trying to pull, Vatican bureaucrats were trying to pull the wool over our eyes about that. And I wrote to the local diocesan paper. And I, so I have been an activist here for over 30 years. Uh, and yes, so I have deeply studied uh, the issues surrounding this. And so, yeah, Father Gruner, Lord rest his soul, was the tireless promoter of common sense and, and reality and logic. Um, Our Lady in June 1929 said, the moment has come when God wishes the Pope, together with all the bishops, to do the consecration of Russia to her immaculate heart. And she had promised in 1917 to the children that if the Pope did this, Russia would be converted and the world would have peace. And she came back when uh, in uh, Spain in June 1929, and he asked for the consecration by the Pope together with the bishops. And in fact, our Lord uh, in 1931, and again, this is, you can, Father Gruner was tirelessly promoting this. In 1931, our Lord appeared to Sister Lucia uh, and uh, he said that he was displeased with his ministers because they had delayed the, the execution of his request. And he said that they will, that if they continue to follow the example of the King of France, they will follow him into misfortune. Let me explain that. This is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? This is June. It was in June of uh, um, 1689 that our Lord, as the Sacred Heart of Jesus, uh, uh, appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and asked that the King of France, Louis XIV, the Sun King, and, his, and he's the embodiment of the nation, right? Uh, to consecrate France to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And he would promise him victory over all his enemies. And he even wanted an image of the Sacred Heart on the flag of France. But Louis XIV, who had an incredibly big ego, did not do it. And neither did his uh, son, I believe, Louis XV. And we get to Louis XVI, ultimately. And what happened exactly 100 years to the day that our Lord requested something and it didn't get done. The third estate stripped the French king of his power in the French Revolution, June of 1789. So our Lord in 1931 in a private revelation is telling Sister Lucia, if the Pope and bishops don't do the consecration of Russia to my mother's immaculate heart, they're gonna follow the example of the King of France and they're gonna follow to the King of France, Louis XVI, he did the consecration from his jail cell before they guillotined him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, now heaven does not always repeat itself in exactly the same fashion, but it looks like heaven gave the king about 100 years to do this. And it, we're approaching 100 years since 1931 when our Lord complained to Sister Lucia, or we're approaching a hundred years since the request was first made in June, 1929, according to Sister Lucia. So if if it's nine years from now, or if it's 11 years from now, the the clock is ticking here and we got to get this done. Uh, And the Pope and bishops have not gotten it done. Um, And even people like Cardinal Burke and Archbishop Vigano are now seeing this and promote and trying to promote the consecration of Russia because and again, we don't want to get off on a tangent of current events here. From socialism, 
you know, in 1946, the, the famous historian, Catholic historian, William Thomas Walsh, had an interview with Sister Lucia. And that was kind of early because the message of Fatima didn't really become completely worldwide until after World War II. But in uh, 1946 or 47, he put the question to Sister Lucia, if the Pope does not do the consecration, uh, will, will all the countries of the world fall to communism? And she said, yes. And he said, does that include the United States of America? And she said, yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so we, we have, we have to pray our rosary. We have to offer up our sacrifices that the, the true Pope will get the grace and that the bishops will do it with him and consecrate Russia. And Father Gruner devoted his life to spreading this message. But towards the end of his life, well, even before the end of his life, he also promoted the fact that the third secret of Fatima and that the third secret tells us about the danger to our faith. And he published, I believe it was 1987 in his Fatima Crusader, he published a 1984 interview with Joseph Ratzinger, the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, in which it was, uh, it was called the Ratzinger Report. It was later published by Ignatius Press. Uh, the journalist Vittorio Mitsuri interviewed Cardinal Ratzinger, and he specifically asked him about the third secret. And this is what, on November 11th, 1984, Cardinal Ratzinger told Vittorio Mitsuri. He said, yes, I have read it. Uh, and when he asked him, why hasn't the secret been revealed? Uh, he, uh, Ratzinger says, because according to the judgment of the popes, it would add nothing from revelation, a radical call to conversion, the absolute seriousness of history, and here's the kicker, the dangers threatening the faith and the life of the Christian, and therefore the world, and also the importance of the last times, okay? Eschatology, right? The end days. Uh, and he says, if it is not published, at least for the moment, it is to avoid confusing religious prophecy with sensationalism. Uh, but the things contained in this third secret correspond to what is announced in scripture and are confirmed by many other Marian apparitions, beginning with the Fatima apparitions themselves in their known contents. Uh, so um, there you have it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. He read the third secret, and this is what he says it has to do. So, um, uh, and then if I could just finish this off, uh, in terms of um, Pope Benedict and uh, Francesco here. Um, in November of 2014, and I think you you brought this up on your blog, there is a, a video on Vimeo, uh, a short video of Father Gruner at a conference, Fatima conference, and he basically says that whatever Pope Benedict was trying to do, he did not resign the papacy. It's, it's, it's compelling, and sadly it came up in the context of Chris Ferrara, who was one of Father Gruner's spiritual sons, saying, I have, I have never had, uh, I've never been associated with anyone who, who thought that Pope Benedict was still the Pope. And I was like, Chris, what are, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Your spiritual father is on video 
in 2014 saying exactly that and here it is um i i i just i don't get it i don't get that whole i don't understand what happened and the politics of of all of that is is weird and i don't want to engage any of it too much it's it's one of those instances where you're just really really happy to be um, independent in the sense that I am independent contractor super nerd does my production mark does the co-hosting we have nice guests on like you dr. Matza, but it's really nice to not be tied up and and connected in any way to any any group like that because things like that happen and you're just like man what what is going on here and and Chris Chris Ferrar you're a solid dude what are you talking about man this is your this is your spiritual father father Gruner um, he he was vehemently 100 percent benedict as pope for exactly the reasons that we've been talking about and years years before i came to the conclusion two years before i came to the conclusion at least and i think father gruner was uh, sounding the alarm just just real quick after everything happened in 2013 i don't think it took him long at all so so it's 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 almost to me nearly impossible to think that the still secret third secret is not did not somehow play into Benedict's actions in in 2013. It's almost inconceivable. And I was wondering if uh, Professor Matza, if you could comment on the supposed revelation of the third secret by Cardinal Sedano with the endorsement of Cardinal Ratzinger in I want to say it was 2002. Uh, 2000, I think, or 2000. Okay. Yeah. Where it was, I mean, to me, at least it was so completely absurd on its surface. Uh, what they, what they did reveal that I, I knew, and I know many other people knew immediately that it was, uh, I mean, I want to call it a ruse almost that, or, or a deflection that, uh, I just thought it was amazing. Do you have the text there, Mark or Dr. Matza, to fill in the listenership if they might not know exactly what was said? Um, well, I think the important point is that what was the the explanation so clearly didn't fit what we had expected to to see. So there there's a portion of the of the secret that has long been revealed, but then it's cut off. It's there there's an ellipsis or 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 something where they basically stopped it. And that's the part that has not that is still clearly not been revealed. There's been an explanation which is what we're talking about happened in 2000, but not the words themselves in the in the way we would expect to find uh, the first two secrets to be to be worded, if that makes any sense. No, I, I know what you're talking about. So um, so in in June of 2000, the Vatican finally released the third secret, so to speak, which was supposed to be released to the public in 1960. And they what they did was they released a vision, but without any explanation of the vision. Okay, for example, in the first secret, the Our Lady showed the children a vision of hell. Now, the interesting thing is the children knew it was hell because they were frightened out of their wits. And they said if Our Lady had not promised to take them to heaven, they would have died on the spot. They saw tormented souls with no buoyancy going up and down in the flames and demons in the form of terrible animals torturing them. 
And you'd think that wouldn't need an explanation, right? That's fairly obvious, fairly straightforward. And yet Our Lady says, you have just seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go in order to save them, blah, 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 right? Now, um, when the Vatican in June of 2000 released the third secret, they released a vision. It's of a, uh, in, in most listeners are probably familiar with this, right? A bishop dressed in white. We had the impression he was the Holy Father is uh, is walking through a devastated city uh, and that eventually they, they come to a hill where there's a cross made out of rough tree bark and soldiers shoot them with uh, arrows and bullets and the Holy Father dies. This time, in the second instance, it's definitely the Holy Father. The Holy Father dies. And um, uh, along the way, he was praying for the souls and there's this vision of an angel with a flaming sword, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's no explanation. Vision. You gotta be kidding me. What do you mean? You think Our Lady would point out you have just seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go to explain a very straightforward vision, but then she would fail to explain a very obscure thing like, you know, the, the, this vision of the Pope in white and all this stuff, right? So, um, Bishop in white. Bishop in white. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so, so on, on the face of it, uh, we really can't trust that the Vatican was dealing, you know, honestly with us here. But to make matters worse, uh, the Secretary of State Sedano, following in the footsteps of Secretary of State Casaroli, uh, and then soon to be succeeded by was it uh, Cardinal Bertone as Secretary of State, and now it's Parolin. I mean, these guys are, uh, I, I have to, I'll, cho I'll choose my words carefully. Uh, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them, <laughs> okay. Uh, um. By their eyebrows, it's, it's an absolute rogues gallery. And, and um, Sedano is, is big time in bed with the Legion of Christ, among other things. So just, you know, bear all of that in mind. Yeah, and, and big, don't, don't big take money our word players. for it. Don't take our word for it. Yeah. Take Archbishop Vigano's word for it. Because he, he tars and feathers these guys. <clears throat> uh, anyway, um, so, but at the time, what Mark just brought up is at the time, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, gives a so-called official explanation of um, what this is about, what the, what the vision means. And it's hard to understand how much of that is Sedano and how much of that is Ratzinger, excuse me. <clears throat> but they tried to put it in the past. They tried to say, <clears throat> excuse me, this is Pope John Paul II being shot in St. Peter's Square on May 13th, 1981. And that's just ludicrous on the face of it, because first of all, um, he didn't die. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of big, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank God, Our Lady of Fatima saved him, and he went to Fatima a year later to thank Our Lady and put the bullet in her crown. In her right? crown, yeah. Um, but, and, and secondly, uh, where's the guys with the bows and arrows, and, and where's all the dead people in, in, in the square, in, in the devastated city? It's just ridiculous on the face of it, right? So. And even somebody like um, Mother Angelica, Lord rest her soul, uh, came out and said, you know what? I don't think we got all of it, referring to the third secret. She didn't think that the Vatican revealed all of it. Um, and so uh, years later, I believe it was 2010, Papa Benedetto is traveling to Fatima. I believe it was for the uh, canonization, was it for the canonization or of, uh, I don't know. It could have been the canonization of Lucia, of uh, uh, Francesco and Jacinta, but if not, he was just going there for a visit. But anyway, an oppressor on the plane, I believe, 
he took questions and he says, uh, talking about the third secret, that that the the enemies of the church are within the church. Those are the worst enemies. And he also says, anybody who thinks that the prophetic message of Fatima is to be limited to the past is only you know kidding himself. So I think that uh, for whatever reason, whatever his reasons were in 2000 to phrase his interpretation of the third secret the way he did, what he said in 2010 meshes with what Ratzinger said in 1984 in that interview with Vittorio Mitsuri about the end times, about the dangers threatening the faith and the life of the Christian, right? Because um, he talks about the enemies of the church being more dangerous than anything else. So um, this is what we have to keep in mind when we try to objectively understand what did Benedict do in February of 2013. We got to keep all this in perspective. And there's a question too of whether they they could have back in 2000 with the with the uh, partial release of the Third Secret. That could have been. I, I want to say that John Paul II was still. Uh, operating with enough mental capacity at that point that he could have actually believed that, that, that it was talking about his assassination attempt and they could have been under orders from him that to, to disclose it in that way. And then Benedict, uh, the, you know, 10 years later or whatever the date was uh, that, that you just brought up professor kind of tug in cheek says, yeah, th th these things are not obviously not events of the past. Exactly. And we're living, and and we are living in the days of Fatima right now. And if you and if you don't believe that, you're kidding yourself. I mean, that's that's pretty clear on the part on the part of Pope Benedict. The other thing that just it, it always creeps into my mind and tying together the the Fatima vision with the uh, vision from Blessed Catherine Emmerich, where it's like a a, a figure that passes in front of a mirror. Yeah, and two yeah. separate figures. But what happens, of course, in the case of passing in front of a mirror is that it's the reverse. Everything's the opposite. Father Z had a really good post on this, and we'll put this in the show notes. And he, he says in his post that that is always stuck in his craw because when you pass in front of a mirror, there's the real thing, and then there's the inverted image that is not real just the reflection and i kind of leapfrogged off of his post and i made a photo post of showing all of these photographs of pope benedict with anti-pope bergoglio and it's and you know they're shaking hands or you know doing the the hug or whatever and they are mirror images of each other. One is real and one is fake, as is the point that I was trying to make with a photo essay. But it's it's a really, really good point, this whole business of the imagery of a mirror. So I don't know, uh, Professor, if you have any conjecture as to the further explanation of the third secret, but it seems to me that it's 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 gotta be something that's that's complete that's devastating in terms of the way Benedict talked about uh, tying it back to end times and that, well, there's nothing really in it that hasn't already been revealed, uh, you know, in scripture or, or, or what have you, that that's probably true. And yet it's got, probably got a specificity to it that uh, is pretty scary. 
Yeah, well, in November of 1984, and why it was never published is because of the fear of sensationalism. And something would have to be pretty scary to create a sensation, right? Um, and so there's that aspect of it. I suppose we could wonder about, as Father Z did, about the identity of the bishop dressed in white, who the children, you know, had the impression he's the Holy Father, but it's hard to, they didn't actually definitively, definitively say that he was. I mean, we could, you could speculate all day about that. Um, again, I don't want to be categorical about this, this is just off the top of my head, but if Benedict did um, uh, separate the Munis from the Bishop of Rome, then um, it could possibly be at least the first part of the, the first part of the third secret with the with they first with the children first see the bishop dressed in white. Could that could that be Francesco as Bishop of Rome? Version. Or he's just, I mean, we're all praying for it and fasting for his conversion, right? Right. What if that happens before he dies? What if that happens while while this stuff happens? He could be the Bishop of Rome, and the reason why he's dressed in white is well because the Bishop of Rome traditionally dresses in white, but he's not the Holy Father. And then later on in the vision, the Holy Father dies, but um, that could either be Benedetto or it could be according to the prophecy of Malachi, it could be Peter the Roman, uh, let's say the successor of Benedetto as as in the primacy. And again, I'm just, I'm, I'm speculating here obviously, but since you put the question to me, that's another thought that that occurs to me. Um, and then lastly, what I would say on this issue is uh, not only did Ratz Ratzinger read The Third Secret, but Father Malachi Martin claimed to have read The Third Secret. And in his book, The Keys of This Blood, and I brought this up at the end of Taylor Marshall's show, he raises a very interesting point. At the, uh, he, he published The Keys of This Blood, which is actually quoting St. Catherine of Siena, uh, regarding the papacy. In that book from 1990, if I'm not mistaken, he says uh, that there were three very bad scenarios which are pretty much inevitable, and what are we going to do about it? And he says, you know, John Paul II is not going to live forever. So what's going to happen at the next conclave? And he says there's three things that could happen, and each one, each scenario could tear the church apart. The first scenario, he says, is that uh, you could get a pope that was invalidly elected. Uh, and you could have people, rightly or wrongly, on both sides of that issue. And that could tear the church apart, institutionally speaking. We know that the gates of hell will never be completely victorious over the church, but they're going to give us a run for our money. Um, the second scenario that could happen is you could have a pope that was validly elected, but who became a heretic while he was in, in, in power. That is to say, a formal heretic and therefore he would lose his office, right? St. Francis de Sales and St. Robert Bellarmine, among others, say that that happens automatically because nobody can judge the Holy Father, it just only God can, so it happens automatically. That would also be a disaster for the church to have a, a heretic in, in the seat of Peter. Uh, and the third thing that could happen could be, well, he was, he was validly elected. Uh, he, he's not a formal heretic, but he and his buddies are systematically dismantling the papacy as we've known it and the church as we have known it. And so each one of these things is horrible, but it's like the Kobayashi Maru. It's a no-win situation because how do you avoid this if most of the cardinals in the conclave are modernists or weak-kneed and lily-livered, right? And that's what leads me to hope, 
Again, I, I want to go on record as saying this is a delicate, complicated issue, and these are only my preliminary findings. This is only a hypothesis. But if Pope Benedict did, in fact, take the separate the primacy from the episcopacy, and especially if he had divine sanction for it, if our Lord himself told him to do this or sanctioned it, right, then that's the solution to, to what uh, Father Malachi Martin's, you know, three-dimensional problem here, right? Um, and I, one could speculate that since he had read the third secret, perhaps this business of these three different scenarios, some, some of this is in the third secret, perhaps. Um, I don't know, but that's my take at the moment. Well, I want to, I just want to fill in if there are any listeners out there who don't understand this star, <laughs> this is bizarre, this Star Trek reference that we're making in Star Trek 2, it opens with um, this test that all of the um, officer candidates, whatever, at Starfleet Academy are given to test them in a no-win situation um, to see how, how they, how they react in a situation in which no matter what you do, you're just completely, you're, you're completely hosed. And so what Captain James Spoiler T. Kirk, alert. Spoiler alert. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert. What Captain James T. Kirk did when he was a young man at the Academy is, is he said, I do not accept the premise that there is a no-win scenario. And so the way he beat the Kobayashi Maru test is that he um, broke into the computer and reprogrammed the the scenario so that it was no longer a no-win situation and therefore he was he was uh, lauded as the first person to ever beat the Kobayashi Maru but he was also disciplined for it so what what Dr. Matsu is saying is that what may be very very possible is that to carry the the analogy forward um that you've got the Malachi Martin three no-win scenario uh, postulation there and what Pope Benedict has done is that he has reprogrammed the computer and he's made he's taken a no-win situation and created an out um, and boy it'd be super super awesome but I do want and we're, we're coming up on our um, hour 45, which is usually our target. If we can, I'd like Dr. Matzit, you to speak to this. Um, there's a lot of people who are looking at the intense damage, um, the, the scandal, the souls that have been lost, people who have died in a state of unrepentant mortal sin specifically because of things that anti-Pope Bergoglio has said, telling them that there's no hell, telling them that their sins aren't sins, etc., etc. And a lot of people out there are just really, really hurting and looking at Pope Benedict and saying to themselves, how can he allow this scandalous situation with so many souls being hurt in real time by this? Um, how can we not look on him as some sort of a selfish, narcissistic monster for allowing this to to go on? Would Would you like to, both of you, would you like to jump in and say anything about that? Well, most definitely. Mark, do you want to go first or... I mean, I guess the only thing I would say would be that uh, it, it's a valid question, and there are people who are actually willing to uh, entertain the idea that what Benedict did was uh, was in error, or if it wasn't in error, somehow he did 
he did retain the papacy. And these people are really mad because if that is indeed what he did, what the hell is he waiting for? What exactly is going to be the cue for him to step out from behind the bushes and say, sorry, guys, this was all a big mistake and we're going to just nullify everything that's happened for the past seven years. What I would say about the the lost souls, which is it's certainly a reality, is that I would think there's going to be some uh, a, a fair deal. A fair, I'm not going to assume this for myself. Uh, I'm going to, you know, take a pretty aggressive bearing, but I, I, I've got kind of got to believe that God's infinite mercy is going to come into play for anyone that is tricked into or or out of uh, despair falls away because it seems like we have the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist squatting on the, on the throne of Peter. There's probably going to be some leniency figured in there. Mm. Good point. Dr. Matza? Um, several things. Uh, again, this is a, a, a hypothesis. If the hypothesis is correct and Benedict separated the primacy of Peter from the See of Rome, then when Jorge Bergoglio was elected by the conclave, he became uh, Bishop of Rome. And I suppose if he wants to change his name, that's his prerogative. That's been the prerogative of the bishops of Rome. Uh, so you, you could, in a certain sense, call him Papa Francesco, since Papa is traditionally a term you could apply beyond just the Pope. I mean, in the early church, and even today, right, the, the, the patriarch of Alexandria in the, in the Coptic church is called Papa. But anyway, um, what am I trying to say here? So uh, why doesn't Benedict um, act, right? What's, what's holding him back from, from, from doing something? Well, Ganschwein, right, uh, in his... 2016 talk at the Greg, he's, while he's going uh, all these superlatives, all this that he's transformed the papacy, blah, 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 right? He, he throws out there, for no good reason, by the way, he throws out there that, you know, this is totally different from what St. Peter Celestine did when he resigned from the papacy, because he would have liked to have just retired and gone back to the monastery and read his books, you know. But uh, instead, he became a prisoner, as Anne, you pointed out earlier in the program, he became a prisoner of the Vatican under his success, successor, Boniface VIII. And in fact, he tried to escape, and, and Boniface sent the troops after him and captured him. Uh, so why bring, you know, actually, he didn't bring that up, but I'm adding that as a historical detail. But why bring that up? Unless he's trying, perhaps, to say that Benedict is not as free as we might think he is. Okay, perhaps in some sense, he is a, a, a victim or a prisoner of the Vatican. We all know about the, right, the Lavender Mafia in the church, we've got the Freemasons. And this is where going back in church history does help you <clears throat> to understand current events. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, in the late 700s, the Pope was Leo III. And do you know what his enemies did to him? They beat him within an inch of his life, and he was permanently scarred, and I think he was blind in one eye. Um, and by the way, so is Pope Benedict, as you, as you so pointed out Benedict, in the previous program. Yeah. Not because they beat him up, I don't think, but anyway, um, not to get off track here. But the, the emperor, the, 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 not the, he wasn't emperor yet, the king of the Franks, guy by the name of Charles, who we know as Charles the Great, came down to Rome to deal with the situation. And what he was told is, he was told by the cardinals 
that Pope Leo uh, was guilty of crimes. He had committed adultery and he had committed perjury and he should be stripped of his power. You guys, have you heard about this incident? Okay, so what does Charles the Great do? He, he can't put the Pope on trial because again, as canon law says, and like we could do a whole program on this if you're interested in the future, um, the Pope cannot be judged by any man, only God can judge him. And so how does, how does Charles get around that? And how, how does Charles help Leo against these terrible men in the Curia? He gets Pope Leo to swear an oath of purgation and in which he says, he swears an oath that he is innocent of all the charges against him, okay? And actually this became a principle of canon law. You can't put the Pope on trial, but you can ask him to make an oath of purgation. And th this might be interesting, if I forget my thought, please bring it back to me before we finish. Um, in the end, uh, the Pope was victorious over his enemies, he stayed in power, and the next year, he crowns Charles the Great as the emperor, the holy, the first holy Roman emperor of Christendom. So there's an example where shady stuff was going on in Rome with the cardinals or, or the, the, you know, what would later be called cardinals. And lay people, obviously a significant lay person, a king, had to step in and help out the Pope. And he was helped out by swearing this oath. Um, so... So my other thought was, and this is, again, I'm thinking off the top of my head, don't hold me to this, but the cardinals or lay people or somebody could ask Benedict to, to swear an oath in which he explains, what did you mean when you became Pope Emeritus? For the good of the church, please go on record and explain what is the relationship between Francesco and yourself? Interesting. Hmm. If if he's if he's under coercion though, that's the problem. Might that be that risky? The, might that be risky? That is the problem. I, I, I like to use movie analogies, so you guys will remember Godfather Two, right? Okay, <laughs> where this guy was going to testify against Michael Corleone, against the Godfather, Frank Pantangeli, right? And yep. Frankie Five Aces, you <laughs> Yep, Frankie Five Aces, and he's in the uh, congressional. Uh, Senate chamber, and uh, he's about to give his testimony that's going to put uh, Michael Corleone away for years and years. And then who walks into the courtroom but his brother? They, they With Michael, yeah. <laughs> with Michael and with the with Michael, mom, yeah. the lawyer, right? Mm -hmm, and he's got mm -hmm. this look on his face like he's about to be executed. Um, and so what does Frank Pantangeli do? Nah, I never knew no godfather. I was in the <laughs> olive oil business with his father. <laughs> he... You're good. That's, that's, that's really, I, I can hear. I can, I can hear the New York man. <laughs> I can do Papa Benedetto too when I'm uh, on, on on occasion. But anyway, um, so Frank Pentangeli reverses his testimony, and and the Godfather goes free, and his brother get put safely back on a plane to Sicily. And now again, I I don't have concrete proof of this, but using my imagination and knowing the evil people that exist in this world today, what if they threaten Benedetto? to push his brother Georg down a flight of stairs, you know? Maybe he's not oh, afraid. There's of all kinds of things, yeah. Never. And we've, everybody's been talking about that since day one. Is, and I think a lot of people might not realize it, that Pope Benedict's older brother is still alive. 
um, and they've been they've been extremely close, and they were extremely close. There was also a sister who was a nun, and the three the three Ratzinger siblings were all very very close, and so everybody has just been saying, do you think Georg Ratzinger might figure into this in any way? And everyone I've talked to has said. It's, it's definitely possible. It's a definite possibility that that could be a point of coercion that is being leveraged against him. Yeah. So a point that you just made about uh, we're, we're talking about the possibility and we really do have to wrap it up. But uh, what really did happen in the conclave, if anything, and is it possible based on what we've talked about here for the better part of two hours that – uh, Bergoglio, may, maybe he was elected as the next bishop of Rome. It's a possibility. It's something that needs to be looked into. But what it certainly doesn't mean is that he's automatically the pope because of that. Because it's different. The, the, cardinal's elect, uh, the cardinal election is not the same thing as conferring the crown, so to speak. And that can be done only by Christ himself and it can only be done if he has also accepted the crown back from the previous occupant. So assuming that God is smarter than us, he, he sees everything that we see and more. So, you know, this evidence of the retention of the office while delegating either the See of Rome or at least the, the governance and function of, of the papacy, uh, delegating that to Bergoglio, while retaining the office, I mean, boy. well, it wouldn't be. It would be. It would be the governance of the Vatican and the Curia, um, the 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 administration, the administrative aspect of it. Yeah, it's this is this is why you're here, Doctor Moss, because this <laughs> well, thing makes so much sense that I have yet to find any aspect of it that, like I said in in the first episode, just doesn't doesn't pass the smell test everything passes the well, sm smell test and in fact it cleans things up let me real quick read you the very end of the declaratio of benedetto he says here i declare that i renounce the ministry of bishop of rome successor of saint peter and listen to the phrase he uses entrusted to me by the cardinals now what did, yeah. the, what did ah. the, right? bishop of rome is what they can do they can't make him pope god makes him pope but they can make him the Bishop of Rome, so to speak, right? Exactly, bingo. Pastor Eternus says that the papacy is entrusted to a man by Christ directly. There is no, there is absolutely no college of cardinals, anything. They do, they do the conclave and they pick the man, but it is Christ and Christ alone who directly makes a man the Pope. And for him, and you, do you think Ratzinger doesn't know that precision? Of course he does. Of course he and, does. And he goes on to say, in such a way that as from the 28th of February, 2013, at 20 hours, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter will be vacant and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is. Now, Dr. Marshall brought up that this would be a slam dunk if it didn't end with the new Supreme Pontiff. And I've had some time to think about that. And, and somebody also, some other people have brought this up as well. So if you want to save that for the next show, I, I could oh, entertain talking about it. Oh, you have to save it. You have, you have to save it? Oh, man, I'm dying now. <laughs> this, is, this is like the end of Dallas and, and who shot JR? <laughs> oh, man. 
Aww, are we going to leave him hanging? Yes. I, it's up to you guys. I, it's your yes. call. All right. Okay, Mark has to wrap it up. All right, Mr. Mark. Okay. So, well, Matt, now we know what the next podcast is going to be about. I, I'm, okay. I'm going to be the evil trad and make them wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wrap it up there, bud. Be- feedback the email address for the show if you have any comments or suggestions is podcast at barnhart.biz masses for ann's benefactors at least one mass every day plus one requiem every week for everyone who died in the previous week please pray for these priests and all priests now more than ever the satanic forces are attacking but your prayers to god for this intention can help hold back that tide the barnhart podcast is a production of super nerd media super nerd would like to thank especially this week Stephen, Richard, Ernest, and Joel for sending a donation via the mail, and also Kimberly and Marilyn who donated via Amazon email, which I don't even know how you do that. If you got some value out of this or previous podcasts and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com donate for more info. Even though he's not on this recording, as you know, if he weren't editing, processing, perfecting, and publishing the recorded audio, even more difficult with three different channels. Uh, uh-huh. You wouldn't now be hearing it. And he also keeps Anne's site going against all cyber threats, foreign and domestic. And now Anne does her thing for the Matthew 1720 initiative. The Matthew 1720 initiative fast um, twice a week, if you can. And of course your prayers at, with the rosary every day and at mass every day, etc. fourfold intention first that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified, that Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, we're not praying to hasten anyone's death, and that he someday achieve the beatific vision, and likewise for Pope Benedict, that he, you know, repents of whatever he might need to repent of, as we all, as we all do, um, that he die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, and someday achieve the, the beatific vision. That's the fourfold Matthew seventeen twenty intention. Nothing less will do. Our Lady, undoer of knots. Pray for us. Doctor, any last words? We want to entrust all of this to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And we pray that uh, the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart will give the graces to the clergy, especially to the bishops and to the cardinals in particular, to resolve this situation. Because, uh, you know, we are a hierarchical church. And, you know, lay people are not supposed to shoot from from the hip and be loose cannons here. And the, the only reason why we're stepping up is kind of what Bishop Fulton Sheen said. He said, uh, don't expect the initiative to come, the initiative to come from the, the clergy or the hierarchy, uh, expect it to come from the laity. And, you know, the, the sheep will not follow a false shepherd. They, they, they hear my voice and they know my voice. And as Jesus told Pilate, um, um, you know, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So we're trying to get to the truth and we're asking God to have mercy on us and to enlighten us as to the truth of this very serious matter. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for, pray for, pray us. for us. Virgin Most Powerful. Pray for pray us. Pray for us. Amen. Until next time, I'm Mark. Stay frosty, my friends. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>